The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. To begin with this morning, I have a slide for us. The beginning of the Gospel of John is a bit like this approach to swimming lessons, being tossed right into the deep end. It's sink or swim. In his introduction to the life of Jesus, John, you can move through that slide. That doesn't need to be up there for us all day. In his introduction to the life of Jesus, John does one better than go, and goes further than all the other gospel writers. It's as though John looked at the gospel of Mark, which begins with John the Baptist. It's as though he took a look at Matthew, which starts with the story of Abraham. Or he took a look at Luke, who takes us all the way back to Adam. And he thought, I'm going to do one better. Hold my beer. (laughs) In the beginning, before there was anything that is, it is a bold and audacious start to his biography. Imagine in your own life if someone was like, I have this friend, Craig, and they're great. They're amazing. I can't wait for you to meet them. And you'd respond, sounds great. Tell me more about Craig. Well, in the beginning, before there was time and space, you'd be like, wait, what? Like, where are we? Where are we? It's a bold, it's an audacious way to begin the story of Jesus' life. And that's, in a way, appropriate because our reading this morning is overflowing with bold and audacious claims. Claims about reality, claims about transcendent things, claims about Jesus. And all packed in there. In my preparation for this sermon earlier this week, I made a list just superficially of dozens of the claims that are packed into these 18 verses without even trying. There is an overflowing amount in there. It seems like John had this important background information that he wants his readers, wants us to be aware of before he begins unfolding the life that Jesus lived. Information about Jesus' identity that the other characters in the story are not totally aware of. There's a bit of dramatic irony there. And information that provides context for Jesus' actions, his words, his deeds, linking his life to this larger story, right? Moses and the law. And in fact, linking his life to the story of all things, the story of all reality. This morning, as we're beginning in earnest with our journey through the book of John, our consideration of the life of Jesus. I kind of want to focus on these four summarizing claims, bold and audacious, even offensive claims that set us up to follow along with John, with Jesus. Before we jump into the first of those four claims, let let me pray for us. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that inspired John in the writing of these words. We thank you that the the same spirit that inspired the writing of these words is now here among us. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would enliven our hearts and our minds to lay hold of the truth of who Jesus is, perhaps like never before. In his strong name we pray, amen. John's gospel begins with some of the most profound words in all of the Bible, all of the world. 
in the beginning was the word. That short phrase captures a claim about all of reality, about the universe. The term for word there is the Greek term logos, from which we get the English term logic or logical. And there would have been a great deal of meaning packed into this one term for John's original's hearers. Those who had a familiarity with the Greek world, with Greek philosophy, would have heard in these first words of John's the notion that in the beginning there was an order to things. There was the rational orienting principle, the form of forms to use platonic language, out of which the universe, the world, received its order, its form. In the term logos, in the beginning was the word, they would have heard this and agreed. Similarly, John's Jewish hearers would have read in this opening phrase, in the beginning was the word of God, the wisdom of God, God's self-expression, through which they would have said, yes, God spoke all things into being as recorded in Genesis. In the beginning, when there were no watery depths, when there was no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, as it says in Proverbs, there was the wisdom through which all creation was given its order. They would have heard that and said, yes. For John's ancient hearers, this idea that there is an order to things from the beginning would not have been particularly bold or offensive. Such a notion was acceptable to them, alive to them from their traditions, their experience of the world. But for us today, this claim of an order to things is perhaps on shakier ground. Our mastery of the world in so many arenas is such that the material reality around us can feel like it's open to our interpretation entirely. It's open to reconfiguration according to whatever we desire. Our propensity toward individualism can make it so an articulation of an order, an intended end for creation for us, seem inherently limiting, restricting of our liberty, restricting of our flourishing. If you've ever watched almost any Star Wars property, there comes a moment where the representative of the empire says, you have to have order, otherwise there's chaos. Maybe you're listening and you're like, is this a, a pro-Palpatine sermon? Is Peter pro-empire? It smacks of us, smacks uh, something of us to us as something oppressive. Yet this notion that there is an order to things is actually an essential dimension of the gospel, is actually good news. This is part of why John begins here. There is an order to existence, an order to our lives, an order to the world, such that scientific inquiry is possible, and such that we have the hope of lives that cohere with concepts like justice, righteousness, with goodness, love. If there is no real order, no word undergirding all things, it's all just power games, language games, and confusion which you call good, I very well could call bad, and vice versa. But John's declaration is that there is an order to things. There's a pattern to creation to which our lives might yet conform. There is a target to hit, a path to follow. And that is good news. 
It's good news that Jesus in the gospel is bringing people, inviting people, healing people in such a way that they're brought into alignment. They're brought into step with the pattern of creation, with the life-giving way in which they were made and all things were made. That is good news. This is the first claim of John's gospel. In the beginning, there was an order, the word through which all things were made. Like I said, that's not a particularly bold or audacious claim, especially for John's original hearers. But the the next words in John's biography of Jesus do begin to press things. In the beginning was the word. Fine, cool. The word was with God. Okay. The word was God. Now we are getting somewhere. Reality has this orienting principle. The word and wisdom of God is the means by which all things were made. Nothing exists outside them. But that this principle or word is God himself is a bit more provocative. And even more challenging, John's words here suggest a certain distinction. The word is God, trouble enough, and yet the word was with God in the beginning. You hear the distinction. The word God, the word with God, that's a problem. I don't have time this morning to go fully into the challenge. This might have been for John's original hearers. And this is going to get very esoteric very quickly. I just would say that this idea of a distinction within God pushes against the idea of divine simplicity that both Greek and Hebrew listeners would have had. Divine simplicity simply means that God doesn't have parts, that there's no division within him that there's nothing contingent in God. He is whole and one, and this is really the key part, does not change. That's how we can rest in the promises that God has given. That's how we can trust in his faithfulness. So this idea that the word was with God and was God himself as well would have been challenging. And much of the early centuries of Christian faith were unpacking what this meant understanding how can this be, yet how can God be wholly one, simple, and thus utterly reliable for you and for me and for all of creation. But what I want to emphasize this morning is something different, is that John here is making this claim that before all things, there was a community, a community of persons, God and the Word, God as well. And through this community, all things were made. And that suggests something dramatic for us, essential to the gospel, because at the center of all things, John is claiming there is a relationship. There's not this monolithic deity, cold, alone, and austere. You think of like the monolith in 2001 Space Odyssey. There's rather a relationship. And as John explains here, a relationship of father and son, son and father. That is a relationship of love. Of love so complete, so abounding, so full that all things were made of this love. Perhaps this morning, the good news that God has for you is simply that. That you are a creation of love. That it is by love that you exist. Whatever the accident of your birth, whatever has been communicated to you by the world around you, It is by love that you were made. It's by love that the world you inhabited exists. 
That is a claim that is bold and audacious in any age. But it's as though your most childlike intuitions are true. You were made in love. The world around you exists by love, made for you and you made for it. This is the simple but deeper truth, deeper than the alienation we feel from the world, from one another, from ourselves, stronger and truer that emerges in Jesus' life through the gospel. There is a power stronger than sin, stronger than death, more durable and relentless than our rebellion, the love at the center of all things. In John's gospel, now we are getting somewhere. If you could peel it all back, pull back space and time and find what is there at the center. What would remain behind it all is the relationship of the father and the son. A claim, a claim so revolutionary that it will change your life. And it will change your life because of the third claim that John makes in these opening verses. The third claim John makes is that you and I are invited. You and I are drawn in, can have the right, the right of belonging to this community, this relationship of love at the heart of all things. That is a bold, audacious, transformative statement. It is something that you are made by love, but it's something more, it's grander and greater that you were made for love. It's something better that you are invited into the community at the center of all things to participate and belong there with the Father and the Son, living in their light, participating in their life, sharing in their glory. That is available to you in all your ordinariness of life, in your brokenness, in your tragedy, in the dark. John's claim is that there is something more available to you and it's available to everyone. It's not contingent upon your parentage, upon your ethnicity, upon your pedigree. It's not related to your mental capacity or your moral uprightness. It is available to all, to all who would receive the word. For John's original hearers, for us, this is a remarkable claim. We say it's got to cost something. You have to be able to qualify somehow. Otherwise, there is chaos. Otherwise, the status quo, the way we have set up our lives, is threatened, is called into question, is too unstable. Otherwise, anyone and everyone could share in this. Yes, yes, yes. That is the life-giving truth John desires us to know as we begin this journey, this story that he is telling of the word, the light and life of all humankind. It's not for someone else. It's not a story of a far-off place. It's for you and I. It's for our neighbors, our friends, and our family. There is something more and better. There's an invitation. There's an opportunity to share in the life that is at the center of all things, before and behind all that there is. There is a life with the word, in congruence with the way things are. That is the third bold, audacious, astounding claim John is making. And John, in his writing, as he tries to keep up with Jesus, is just getting started. Because this fourth final claim is where things truly go off the rails. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
John, it is too much, too audacious, too bold, too incredible, too offensive. That you want to claim there is an order of things is fine. That you would suggest that behind all things is a community is difficult, but okay. That you would say there is a way for us as finite human beings to participate, to share in that relationship. We can get our heads around. However, that you would say that the rational orienting principle behind all things, that God's self-expression, God's self, would become flesh and dwell among us is too far, too much. It, it might be possible to say that human beings can transcend the physical world, can enter into some communion with the divine by their minds, escaping the world around them. But it is something altogether different to say that the divine, the transcendent, could or would become flesh, finite, dirty, decaying bodies. All that is passing away. No eternal transcendent God would stoop to do this. That is the perspective John's original hearers would have had. This is offensive. This is scandal. And perhaps it is scandal for us as we reflect on our own bodies, our own fleshliness, the insecurities, the weaknesses we feel. The word become this? And yet it's with this scandal that he begins his story. Because this offensive claim is at the very heart of the gospel, the heart of Jesus' life and work. That God looked upon his creation, looked upon you, made in love, with such love, and loved you, loved his creation to the end. Love to the point of his condescending to us. Just as he dwelt among his people in a tent and tabernacle in the wilderness, so in Jesus he resides among us in the wilderness of our fleshly existence drawing near, drawing down, that we might be lifted up, descending to us, that we might rise and ascend with him. This is the reason why John begins his story by plunging us into the deep end. It's why he begins his story about Jesus with these transcendent, challenging, seemingly esoteric claims, because the goal here is not to introduce to us Jesus as a remarkable human being though he is certainly that. John's intentions is not that his readers, that we would admire Jesus as a wonderful teacher and human example, though he is certainly those things. His goal is deeper than that. His goal is that you and I, that his hearers, would receive Jesus, would receive him as the word before time, the one through whom all things have their existence, the light of the world, the word become flesh. That is John's project. That is the hope for you and I, for his readers. That is our hope for life, for peace, for glory. Because it's only in receiving Jesus, receiving him as the word, that we're given the right to enter in, to be the children of God, authorized to enter into that relationship of love shared by the Father and Son. This is key and so easily missed. Jesus is not simply this incredible human being, like a human being better and stronger, like Captain America or something, right? No, the Christian claim, John's claim is something like this, that what philosophers would call the ground of all being, an entity wholly distinct from every created thing, has entered in, taken up flesh, become human, took on the pattern and shape of an ordinary human life, 
to redeem and restore what was marked by sin, to make a way for us to enter into the relationship of love. At the center of all things, you and I, by Jesus, have been granted access. That is what the church is, simply people who have been granted access, authorized to enter where they do not belong in and of themselves, into the family of God. This is what John is seeking to get to us, this remarkable truth about who Jesus is. Some of you may have seen this. I've been bombarded by ads in the last few weeks on my computer. I think tomorrow, Matthew McConaughey is holding this event, The Art of Living. It's like an online free event. Uh, it's like him and Tony Robbins and other celebrity guru types. And honestly, it looks pretty cool. But it's like this, like, oh, like, learn how to just keep living like Matthew McConaughey does or something like that. It's like, shape your life like Matthew McConaughey. And I want to say this morning, like, you can listen to Matthew McConaughey. You can listen to Andrew Ferris or Andrew Huberman. You can try to emulate whoever your, like, celebrity spirit animal is. <laughs> Maybe there's, like, a wisdom that they can give you. But this is key. You have to reserve space for Jesus, unique space, because he is singular. He uniquely stands. He alone can lead you into life and peace. He alone can lead you into the relationship of love for which you long and were made. He alone can grant us the peace, the shalom, the life, abundant life that we so deeply desire. In him, there is a fullness that no one else can match. In him, there is grace, truth, and glory that can be found nowhere else. That is what John wants you and I to see so that we would receive him in our ordinary lives. So that we would say with, just like Thomas, doubting, struggling, faithful Thomas last week, my Lord and my God. There is a familial dimension to the language that John is using here. To receive Jesus is to receive him as family. To exercise hospitality toward him as the word made flesh. That is to believe in his name. To trust in his character, his person. Such that our allegiances to him such that we acknowledge the truth of his claims, we confess him with joy and gratitude. I wonder what it might mean to offer Jesus hospitality in your life today, this week, this season. I've wrestled this week with what it means for us to receive Jesus now, today, in our context. And two words come to mind, prioritization and encounter. Prioritization, to consider the words of Jesus, his way of life, as fundamentally integral. To consider his presence as an essential thing for our good. To consider him as the word made flesh drawn near to us. As one to whom we can come with our most pressing, most challenging, most intimate of needs. Knowing that he's able, that from his fullness he longs for us to receive grace in place of grace. Later on in the gospel that John records, Jesus will say, abide in me. That's prioritization language. But it's also striking to me, and this is the second word encounter, that John's claims about Jesus, the remarkable, bold, audacious claims he makes, emerged out of his life with Jesus. Reflecting on the various encounters he had had, the encounters he saw Jesus having with others. 
He didn't will himself to believe these things. He reflected upon what emerged from his encounter with Jesus. We need such encounters. And so my encouragement is, as you approach this table, as you engage in worship with a sincere heart, as you perhaps go for prayer with the prayer workers, come seeking an encounter with the the Word made flesh. Come with a heart eager to receive Jesus and with the expectation of his reception of you. To receive Jesus is to receive and worship him in the fullness of who he is. And it's to become a child of God, to receive the authority to enter in where we do not belong, to enter into grace and truth and glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.